I know how this sounds. But keep in mind, a million a year is middle class in New York City. So I don't think I'm overreaching at all. Are there any guys who could make 500,000 or more on this board? Any wives? Could you send me some tips? I dated a businessman who made around 200 to 250, but that's where I seem to hit a roadblock. 250,000 won't get me to Central Park West. I know a, a woman in my yoga class who was married to an investment baker and lives in Tribeca. She's not as pretty as I am, nor is she a great genius. So what is she doing right? Here are my questions specifically. Where do you single rich men hang out? Give me specifics, bars, restaurants, gyms. What are you looking for in a mate? Is there a, an age range I should be targeting? Why are some women living lavish lifestyles on the Upper East Side so plain? What's the story there? Lawyers, investment bankers, doctors, how much, are those guys, how much do those guys really make? And where do you hedge fund guys hang out? How do you rich guys decide on marriage versus just a girlfriend? I am looking for marriage only. At this point, we're all feeling like, okay, she has no friends. Because like most of her vision is a blind spot. And this is where like, you're like, oh, bless her heart. But one guy takes the time to respond very, very adequately and frankly, graciously. And which he says, I qualify, at, it's an investment banker's response. I qualify as a guy who fits your bill. I make more than $500,000 per year. Here's how I see it. Your offer is plain and simple, crappy business deal. What you suggest is a simple trade. You bring your looks to the party and I bring my money. Fine, simple, but here's the rub. Your looks will fade and my money will likely continue in perpetuity. In fact, it's very likely that my income will increase, but it is an absolute certainty that you won't be getting any more beautiful. <laughs> so in economic terms, you are a depreciating asset. In Wall Street terms, we'd call you a trading position, not a buy and hold. It, it doesn't make good business sense to, quote, buy you, which is what you're asking. So I'd rather lease. The deal makes sense for me is dating, not marriage. Oh, and all those present said, ouch, right? Now, I read this because it's funny in that it's true, but it's tragic in that it seems mildly familiar in terms of our approach to relationship as a consumer. What can I get out of this deal? And the fact is, this is one of the biggest diseases that we have going today. It affects us in marriage. It affects us in friendship. It affects us when we come to church and when we go to work because we approach it from the standpoint of what's in it for me. How can I get my needs met? Which actually, without meaning to, takes God off of his throne as the source of every good and perfect gift. And what it does is it makes us out to be spiritual authority figures um, as we look to provide for all of our needs. So customers then become dollar signs rather than people with whom we get to bless in God's name, because God is gonna provide for us. And the same thing happens with marriage, is that we walk into, and, and I would actually broaden it to say into relationship, because we have this way of brokering sort of relationships and tiring on them if it feels like this is a one-way street. 
And yet we want to be able to walk in faith and hope that God provides for our needs. And maybe the people, even the EGRs in our life, the the ones who need the most extra grace required, the AGRs in our life that might need a little more grace and patience and compassion. And so when we read something like this, it becomes painful, both the petition and the response. But there is a consumerism that is killing relationships and the most intimate ones of all. Um, and, and, and again, it, it simply says the problem makes us the center of our life and actually removes God from the source. So uh, Ephesians chapter 5. I have a few of the verses uh, up here, but you're going to want to fire open maybe an app uh, or maybe a Bible if you brought it. Uh, Because I'd love for you to follow along. There's some things that um, you're probably going to want to do a double take. You're going to want to read a little bit more closely. Uh, And I want to just back up from where where we've been. Uh, In Ephesians chapter 5 verses 1 and 2, he begins by saying, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. What is the key word that that Paul is trying to communicate here? And again, this is a little bit of a refresher. He wants us to live in light of two things. One, the gospel story and how it changes our identity. And secondly, the infilling of the spirit. But love. Now, scripture's view of love is more more than an emotion. It's always about an action. And the question I have is, what then is the point of being loved? good i'm loved it's sort of like asking what would you do to the person who's been the most generous in your life so i think about what my parents have afforded me whether it be in a, you know an advanced education or you know just you know a wonderful upbringing but maybe the most insulting thing that i could ever do is try and actually write a check and repay my parents for all they've afforded me that's an insulting form of, of, of what to do with the gift of generosity Maybe the best way to respond to generosity, like love, is to become like it. So knowing that you have been loved in such an unconditional way, God is inviting us and Paul is teaching us to maybe learn to live as you've been loved by God. That becomes a really formative way to begin to see other people. And that God loves us in our misery and and in our foibles and in our stumbling. Um, And and he invites us to participate with love that way. And now, if you've ever dated, you also understand that, you know, is love supposed to be an end in and of itself? Or is it something that we're supposed to steward? Is it something to receive or to be inspired by? And for those of us, again, who have dated, uh, love has a way of causing us to do maybe irrational things. Love has a way of maybe us to find a different level of motivation. Go, oh no, it's just worth it. And I remember taking long road trips for like a weekend that I was gonna be in San Francisco and drive all the way down to San Diego just to spend like 36 hours. And it was worth the 10 hour one way trip in the heat when I had this old car with the you know, heater slightly stuck on uh, because I was gonna get to spend time with Laurel in the middle of summer. 
Okay, I'm less motivated now and maybe like more practical now. Like that's a harder thing. I, I wouldn't say that, but like the newness of love makes you do silly things. And at that time, I remember driving down and I had been working construction and gotten poison oak. And uh, I mean, it was just a disaster, but I was like, no, we get to hang out because that's what you do when you're in love, right? Love has a way of motivating. And, and that's what Paul's getting at is what do we do now that we've been loved? And he's saying, it should change us, change not just what we, how we feel, but change our actions towards another. Then he goes on in verses 18 through 21, and, and he starts to unpack what he means, about, uh, and he talks about, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to corruption. Uh, instead, be filled with the Spirit. Now again, he's speaking to Christians. There is something that happens post-salvation that the Holy Spirit wants to do. And it's not about losing it and trying to get it back, but it's about cultivating it. And so when he's talking about being filled with the Spirit, it's developing a rapport with Jesus. Like you have with the closest relationships, you develop a shorthand. You knew it with your parents. You were so close to your parents, you could see their dismay or their pleasure. You could see when you were acting up and getting out of line and you were going to get it. You could see it across the room from a spouse that you're like, okay, she's ready to go now. I need to say my goodbyes. There is a shorthand, a kind of rapport, a kind of intimacy when you have this kind of relationship. When we're filled with the Spirit, there's a kind of mm, a check in our spirit. There's a kind of uh, unrest that occurs. There's a kind of motivation that grows out of that. And that's what Paul's getting at as we interact with the Spirit. But it can also, conversely, be grieved and be dulled and be numbed. He said, and then this is how it starts to look and how we cultivate that more. Speaking to one another with psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. Always giving thanks to God the Father for, for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So when we come into worship, this prelude to preaching isn't just some kind of simple like mechanical thing we do to get to the real meat of the night. We need to rehearse or maybe wash over the narrative of what this last week was like because I tell you what, my news feed, the news media doesn't help promote the discipline or the rhythm of gratitude in my heart. It needs to be interrupted with the graciousness and the love of God. And so we come to join together in worship and to even lift up hands as a, as a symbolic act of surrender to God. I need that reconditioning in my life if I want the Holy Spirit to kind of be resensitized. Uh, and so we talk about different things. Now, Here's where it gets interesting because he gets to this point and he gives us some directives that we went over last week, but now he starts to make a turn and he says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And he's about to go into what it means to submit first in a marriage and then secondly among children, servants, and masters. So it's not like it has any application here and then, but let's just make it a history lesson for there and then. Uh, and so he says, submit to one another. Now, to understand that you have this new identity and filled with the Spirit is to animate Christ's life. Paul teaches to submit, not if they're deserving, not if they're trustworthy, but out of reverence. So we have to ask the question when we're invited to yield our will, we have to invite it, who's our audience? 
who now are we living for? Well, if our identity is in Christ, that I'm chosen by him, okay, I don't actually like this person I work for, but out of reverence for Christ. I don't have respect for how this elected official is acting, but I'm invited to pray on their behalf. There is this invitation out of reverence for God to come with humility. And that is one of the most painful things to be able to learn. Uh, But I would simply define to submit means to yield one's own rights. And if the relationship called for it, like say the military, uh, then the term could mean obedience. But here's what's really, really important to understand about this verse. Whenever scripture talks about submission, it never means obedience in the context of marriage. So when we hear people holding up, well, the head of the household, you just need to obey, that's not actually scriptural. But when we hear the term submission, there are terms, times where it does come into the category of obedience, i.e. military, or children obeying parents, or servants obeying masters, or masters serving the good of, of their servants. But in the context of marriage, when it talks of submission, it doesn't equal obedience. Really important for us to understand. Uh, and so in other words, submitting becomes, get this, an actual supernatural part uh, of the relationship so that we can thrive in marriage. Thrive in a lasting marriage. And lasting marriages, I would simply say, don't keep score. In fact, I would add, lasting marriages don't have things that sound like, I did it last time. (laughs) Or it's your turn. Uh, mostly because I encourage people to just keep giving, don't keep score. And that's easier said than done. But I think that applies to our relationships uh, uh, in general. And so one of the things he talks about in this passage is not letting the sun go down on your anger. And if you want to sow seeds of resentment, just keep going to bed slightly miffed. If, if you want to just sow seeds of resentment and create a growing detachment, keep not saying stuff. Keep acting passive-aggressive. Keep being sort of resentful. And what we're invited to do is name it. Name it, and if we learn to name it, then we learn to own it. Uh, and if we learn to own it, well, now we can steward it or leverage it. Think about that. The things we learn to name are the things we learn to own. That is, take responsibility, right? And once we learn to like, take responsibility for it, now I can actually steward it for God's good. So uh, Paul shows us how each partner can sustain and thrive in helping this relationship. So he goes on, and I want to encourage you to just open your Bibles to uh, Ephesians 5, verse 22. Now that I've kind of laid the foundation for, for love, for the ministry of the Holy Spirit, for what submission actually looks like, uh, yielding... Um, you know, yielding uh, one's own rights. And, and he starts to talk about what it looks like. And he says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is head of the church. 
Um, now, again, I read this and I say, I think so much bias has been projected onto scripture. I would argue that between this, the Holy Spirit and this kind of teaching is some of Paul's most misunderstood teaching and misappropriated teaching. So it's really important you don't leave early because uh, I want to unpack what, what I think some of this means. Uh, verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy cleansing her by the washing with water through the word to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any blemish but holy and blameless in this same way husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies he who loves his wife loves himself after all no one ever hated his own body but he feeds and cares for it just as Christ does the church for we are members of his body. Uh, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, uh, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about, but I am talking about, almost like, don't get lost, he's almost being illustrative, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you, uh, however, each one of you must also love his wife and he loves himself as he loves himself and the wife must respect her husband okay please don't understand misunderstand Paul's teaching as kind of ancient patriarchy and I would simply define patriarchy as that which men have done at the expense of women and we can find that in some of the a lot of scriptural uh, cases and interpretation we can find that in in every culture we can find that through every government um, and so what I'm saying is this is bigger than that. I think Paul and, and Christ is an advocate for really strong masculinity, but what we're not talking about is patriarchy. So I make a distinction between those terms. Um, now, I think Paul's writing to bring about a level of dignity and respect uh, when a time when women had no rights and no voice. So it's ironic tragic that it's been interpreted to be this obedient subservient role um, now you've heard me share on occasion I believe that male and female represent the fullness of God in creation whatever gender stereotypes you want to uh, attribute to that whether it be nurturing and comforting and encouraging or strength provider protector I think all of it represents the fullness of God so we ascribe a lot of masculinity to God, but God is without gender, and I think the fullness of humanity is seen in male and female. That's why there's this equality, but it's not necessarily sameness, and I'll maybe unpack that uh, a little bit more. Uh, now, here's what's important to understand, and it was fascinating as I was kind of diving deeper into this. In, in, in Roman times, the Romans were troubled with what they called the spread of religion from the East, and they were um, concerned that there would be other teachings that would upset what their traditional family values dictated and, and were socially acceptable. And so in that context, you had most men marrying around 30, marrying a woman that was 10 to 15 years younger than him. So already you have this kind of male dominance over um, twice as old, potentially. But there was this idea 
within all of the writings started with um, kind of the writings of Aristotle, a kind of moral code that was socially understood and, and widely accepted that the male was the absolute authority head of the household in every home. So now, as you think about that, think about what Paul has just said to all of the men who are in this Greco-Roman context and he takes their standard form of authority in the home and he turns it on its side. This is Paul being a woman's liberator and promoting the role of women when women have no voice and no rights. Paul steps up and he says to them, actually, the male isn't actually the ultimate authority in the home. Christ is. And for those of you who are living as new creations in Christ, I want you to understand that you have a greater responsibility to your Lord and Savior than you do your social norms. And for you, conversion to Christianity is going to feel like a painful unlearning if you're going to get this thing right and if we're going to be a testimony to the world. For you to fully understand this, you've got to undo what's always been your norm. And he starts in with this whole other picture. And he says, Paul undermines the basic premise of all these quotes. Um, and, and he's challenging men to be better, godlier men, not necessarily to be in charge. So let me just give you a working definition that I like to talk about in every premarital conversation that I've ever had. And it's this. What is leadership? Specifically, what is spiritual leadership? And I would say this, and you can apply it to marriage or you can apply it to your small group. You can apply it uh, to your home with kids in parenting, however, but it's this. Spiritual leadership is the one who's willing to assume responsibility for the health of that relationship. I'll say it again. Spiritual leadership is the one who's willing to assume responsibility or take responsibility for the health of the relationship. Yeah, but if you knew what he said, you would never forgive. If you knew what he did to me, it doesn't matter. You might be totally justified and totally right. But spiritual leadership, based on the infilling of the Holy Spirit and my new identity in Christ, says, I'm willing, even though I've been wronged and I sit in the right I'm going to assume responsibility for the health and create a dialogue again. Because I don't want to talk to this person, let alone have to share a bed with this person. And Paul is inviting us to take responsibility for the health of each and every one of our relationships. And some of us have carried wounds into adulthood. And we go from relationship to relationship, job to job, church to church, and we carry the wounds and we keep looking to refresh the circumstances as if it's going to change. Because, But we've just walked in with the same woundedness, the same resentment, the same level of abuse, the same level of distrust. And what he's saying is you can be free in Christ, but to be a leader is to take initiative for the health of those relationships relationships. Someone asked me this week, say, what do you do when you've asked for forgiveness, when you've apologized and they say no? You walk away knowing that you've done what God's invited you to do, but also knowing you pray for them because they're the ones that are going to lose sleep over it, holding on to what is familiar even though it's cancerous. 
Paul invites us into a new level of intimacy to manage the health of our relationships by simply taking responsibility, even when we don't want to. But that's what leadership is. The buck stops with someone, and who does it stop with? All of us. We're all on both the giving and the receiving end of relationships, whether it's in the context of marriage or any other application you can imagine, supervisor or subordinate. God invites us to take responsibility for the health of those relationships. But he's specifically applying it to marriage, and he's writing this countercultural message to these people who are raised in this culture that says, men are accountable to no one. And he's like, oh, no, 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 no. Remember all that stuff about the gospel story, God's story changing our story? This has to be transformational. Um, and so the question is, whose job is it? Well, uh, I think it's both. And so mutual submission then implies a chain of care more than a chain of command. And if we could blow up the model of hierarchy, we would be well served because when you understand that we're all responsible for taking responsibility, it's a chain of care and we're all linked to each other. That when you carry your woundedness into another relationship, somehow I'm going to have to be exposed to that. So we want to take responsibility for that. Now, the question is, if the end game of relationship is intimacy, um, then we have to be honest about what is vulnerability, uh, you know, vulnerability then is always going to be required. But the thing that makes vulnerability work is to feel safe, is to feel like someone is trustworthy. Um, I had someone say this to me, a counselor, just full confession. It was something that I was processing and I was in the right and I was saying, well, this is what I'm going to go say. And he says, David, can I just say you're totally right? I would want to say the same thing, but can I just warn you that when you approach someone in confrontation, you're actually making yourself vulnerable. I'm like, well, I don't feel safe with that person. He goes, clearly. But us saying, oh, I'm totally right, and I'm going to unload on you and tell you where you've been wrong, actually might give them more ammunition. So it's not about being right in relationship, but it's assuming to take responsibility for the health of the relationships, whatever that means. And there requires a lot of wisdom and probably some counsel. But he helped me tap the brakes to come in guns loaded like, oh, buddy, I got you now. And he's like, I don't know if you're emotionally strong enough to go guns a-blazing. Probably right. Definitely right. Wisdom, right? Chain of care, uh, not, not a chain of command. Uh, and so just as patriarchy is different than masculinity, um, I think feminism needs to be about equality, but not sameness. So when we have this picture, I think God created us, like I said, as the fullness of God. You know, he goes through the creation order. Um, darkness and light and land and sea and, and birds and, and, and livestock. And he goes, good, good, good. And then he gets to humanity, male and female. And he goes, very good. And we are the jewel of God's creation, male and female, in all of our distinctiveness. And so when feminism is this pendulum swing and it's being done at the expense of men, we've got more toxic economy. We've got a toxic society. We, we've got this kind of emasculation of men. And I would say patriarchy is equally as toxic. 
but we have to go through it with wisdom and say that, listen, God has created us so uniquely, so beautifully, which is, by the way, one of the reasons why when we created a church and started with a blank canvas, we said, we need women at all positions, including our elder board, not saying it's a men-only club because we want to say, I need the perspective of women. My wife's perspective makes me better. My, my friends that are women perspective makes me better there's a blind spot that they can help me see that makes me better and so it's needed in our leadership conversation and so that's one of the ways we've positioned ourselves as mission hills to be able to kind of encourage that leadership voice really important but i think largely and i'm not going to say anyone's wrong i just or throw stones because there's a lot of churches that think well we love women but we can't have them on our elder board i'm like I don't think it's sin, but I think you're missing out. I, God bless you, but keep praying. That's all. I, I mean, you know, what, what am I going to say? Like throw a stone at them? There's too many other battles that I'm going to fight other than I'm going to start a church and try and nurture the voice. Now, but feminism, the idea that we need to be equal to men, which is to say we need to do exactly what men do, I think is really flawed thinking because of God's design. There's something really beautiful about distinctiveness, not sameness. And so when we advocate for the equality of women, we have to like be wise enough to say, should it look identical or has God uniquely gifted them to speak or, or, or contribute in, in other ways? Just food for thought. Again, my contention is what Paul is doing is, is creating a liberation movement uh, and is trying to advocate for, for women who have no voice uh, and certainly no rights. Now, chapter six, he introduces the role of children and parents, servants or slaves and masters. And he goes through all of these things and talks about a level of submission that involves now obedience, about obeying your parents for the Lord, for it is right. And he goes through this thing, and I don't want to unpack it uh, too much, uh, but I would simply say there is a difference between followership and leadership and followership always precedes good leadership i think that some of the worst leaders are ones who have never learned to follow well um i was remember talking with a friend uh who uh, was working in a corporate environment and he was working for a middle-aged man but was boy wonder at 26. He was the smartest, richest guy in the room at 26, which is super dangerous because you never learn to climb the bottom rungs of the ladder. And so what ends up happening is you're always the right guy, the wealthiest guy, the smartest guy, and eventually you get to middle age and you're just blind spots and you're kind of a jerk. And it's like, the problem is there was no developmental path. He had never learned to be a follower. One person said it like this, don't complain about the bottom rungs of the ladder because they helped you get higher. There's something about learning to follow and just saying, I will follow even if I don't understand. I'll follow even if I don't agree. Because that's usually the conditional thing. Oh, I'll go along with it as long as you do everything I choose. You have my vote and, and, and unless you like decide something different than I would want you to do. I'm like, well, I want to learn to follow 
even if um, I don't always understand the dynamics going on in the leadership conversation. Because ultimately, that reflects on God. God is a huge mystery to me much of the time. And if I choose to follow after God based on without learning to actually follow, like, I'll follow you if I agree with you or if you're a light unto my path. I'll follow you if I like what your will is, but not when I don't like it. We will be so starved for intimacy and healing. So we have this. Uh, if we have a hard time um, submitting ourselves to authority figures, what extent are we able to submit ourselves to God? And what we're simply talking about is yielding our rights. So I want to pray with you. I've said a lot today, giving you some things to think about. My hope would be you've maybe jotted a couple of notes and we can make it part of an ongoing conversation. But hopefully it's, the, it's kind of a, a, I want to encourage some emotional intelligence as well as some growth and wisdom. And, and to be able to see how God is creating us to, to bless and to be able to leverage all that we've been through for first healing, but also for, for the sake of others. So let's pray about that, and we're going to have a time to respond in worship tonight. Our Father in heaven, I'm aware that um, each of us come limping in here with maybe um, some cultural bias, um, some uh, personal experiences, uh, and um, I'm aware that we just need your Holy Spirit to be a voice uh, of wisdom and of reason. I pray that you would be uh, kind of uh, speaking to our own hearts and minds and adding your grace to my words. But I pray that you would care for us uh, as your own children, as we seek to follow you and to honor you, but to be a part of your redemption and of your restoration, of your salvation. So I pray that we would be faithful stewards to receive your love and to somehow animate it in the world around us. Um, and, and I pray that we would uh, have a kind of a, uh, just a shorthand with the ministry of your Holy Spirit, that we would be quick to respond to conviction and we would be people who would pray prayers of examination, but we would be continue to be made uh, more into your image. And so we pray for the mind of Christ, that we would begin to operate in growing wisdom gifts as we uh, seek to know you, know you best. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.